Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is MJ. And I'm Liz. And we're your host of Sisters in Crime. This week I'm super excited because we're taking a break from Missing and Murdered and we are talking about one of my favorite cases and that's the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. I am super fascinated with this case and I really really like it because technically speaking this is a victimless crime. This episode is divided into two separate parts. In the first part, I am talking all about Isabella and how she started the museum and the second part is all about the heist. So in case you're only here for one or the other, definitely check out our episode notes where we included timestamps so you can skip straight to the heist. Everybody else, let's get started. So the quote-unquote victim of this crime is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum or better known as the Gardner Museum located in Boston, Massachusetts. Shout out to all the listeners in Massachusetts. We appreciate (laughs) y'all. 100%. I think it's important to give you guys some background information about who Isabella Gardner was and how she came to have her own museum. Isabella was born on April 14, 1840 to a wealthy family in New York City. Isabella was lucky to have an education, primarily from private tutors who would come to the Stuart home, kind of like a homeschooling type of teaching. From a young age, Isabella showed an interest in the arts, including dance and music. At the age of 16, Isabella and her family traveled to Paris, where they ended up staying and lived for a total of two years between 1856 and 1858. During this time, Isabella traveled to Italy, where she fell in love with the art and architecture of the area. She specifically loved timepieces like the Renaissance art. It was during this trip that she promised that if someday she had the money, she would purchase art and display it for all to see in her own home. Finally, after two years, Isabella finished school and headed back to New York. Once in New York, Julia Gardner, who was a friend and former classmate of Isabella's, invited her on a trip to Boston. While in Boston, Isabella met Julia's brother Jack. Soon after, the two fell in love, and just two short years later, they married. As a wedding gift, Isabella's dad gave them a house. A house? A house. The house was located in Boston, and keep in mind, Jack and his family, the Gardners, were rich too. Unlike the Stewart family who made their money from Irish linen importation, the Gardners earned their wealth through the maritime trade, I believe it's pronounced. And Liz, I had to look this up. I had no idea what this was. Um, So could you please define it for our listeners? For sure. Simply put, the maritime trade is the phrase for transporting goods throughout ships, which was pretty much the only way to transport goods between countries during this time. But yes, the Gardners made their money that way and later continued building wealth through investments Isabella at this time is 20 years old, so she's super young. Girl, this was the 1800s. This is normal. I was just about to bring that up, but yeah, I mean, she was super young and living her life with her hubby Jack. Three years later, in June of 1863, the couple welcomed their first child, who unfortunately died in March of 1865 due to pneumonia. It was very sad that their baby boy passed away, and right after, Isabella miscarried what would have been their second child. 
Her sister-in-law and friend Julia died soon after this as well. Mortality rate is crazy high during this time. Yeah, and at this point, Isabella has suffered a lot of loss in such a short life. By 25, Isabella had already lost all three of her siblings, who were younger than her, two babies, and her friend. Isabella became extremely depressed having to deal with so much loss and grief that in 1867, her doctor recommended that she take a vacation away from Boston in hopes that she would quote-unquote forget about how devastated she was. Isabella and Jack agreed, so the couple packed their bags and headed out. The two traveled for a year, visiting Northern Europe and Russia, but spending most of their time in Paris. To help cope with her depression, Isabella began keeping journals with details of their travels. Soon, the couple returned to Boston, where people noticed a complete 180 in Isabella's demeanor. Instead of her depression consuming her and stripping her from all her personality, as well as her introverted behavior prior to the trip, Isabella returned as a social butterfly within the elite and wealthy community of Boston. She loved to entertain guests in her home, those which included musicians, artists, and writers, and anyone creative. What do you mean in her home world? Like, people visit her or, like, who? Yeah, like, she would throw, you know, like social gatherings you know with live well not live music but just like you know hanging out at her house you know coming to visit her and i really like this Avella at this point of the story i feel like she was so different for her time you know she was educated well traveled and this is the 1800s we're talking about she definitely was a baddie <laughs> yes um we love her like I said, Isabella came back better than ever from her travels. So a couple years later in 1874, the couple decided to take another trip to Egypt and the Middle East. Isabella continued journaling throughout her travels. Details of the artwork, architecture, and lifestyle from the city she visited were noted. Sadly, the pair cut their trip short when they received news that Jack's brother had suddenly passed away, leaving behind two young sons. Without hesitation, Jack and Isabella took their nephews in and raised them as their own. It was during this time that Isabella began broadening her knowledge by sitting in on the teachings of her friend, Charles Elliot Norton, who became the very first art history professor at Harvard University. Professor Norton suggested that Isabella should join the Dante Society to further her knowledge of the arts. What was the Dante Society? I had to look it up because I had no idea, but their mission statement according to the DanteSociety.org website is to promote the study and appreciation of the time, life, works, and cultural legacy of Dante Alighieri. <laughs> and I definitely mispronounced that. I'm so sorry, guys. Don't come at me. Spanish is my first language. Um, but yeah, Dante was an Italian man known for his poetry back in the late 1200s and early, early 1300s. But through joining the Dante Society, Isabella began her collection of books and manuscripts, which included the rare early editions of Dante's works. Fast forward to 1883, the family packed their bags and headed to Asia to do what she always did on her trips, explore the country, study the art, and wrote in her journal. In 1884, the family arrived in Venice, where she visited the Palazzo Barbaro. The Palazzo Barbaro was a palace owned by Boston natives Daniel and Ariana Curtis, who flipped the property and turned it into an art hub. Frequent visitors included artists, writers, musicians, and of course Isabella and Jack. It was here that Isabella had the opportunity to network with artists and art enthusiasts like herself. The circle of friends encouraged Isabella to take her art collecting seriously. One specific person Isabella met in this tight-knit circle was Bernard Berenson, a young bright student of Harvard University who described himself as an art connoisseur. 
Bernard played a major role in Isabella's quest for the perfect art piece to start her collection, and later became her purchase advisor for years to come. In 1891, Isabella's father passed away, leaving behind a $1 million inheritance to Isabella. This poor girl cannot catch a break, huh? And a million dollars is a lot nowadays, but it was even more back then. I did the math on an inflation calculator just to see how much money this actually would be today, and that $1 million inheritance would be worth over $29 million today. Oh my god, she was rich, rich. <laughs> I know, and with this inheritance, Isabella decided to invest in her very first art piece. The very first piece Isabella purchased was Vermeer's The Concert, which she purchased the same year in a Paris auction. Guess how much she purchased it for versus how much it's worth today. I already know it's going to be a completely ridiculous difference. It really is. She purchased this piece in 1891 for $6,000 and today it's worth over $500 million. Millions? Oh my god. From here, Isabella and Jack began purchasing plenty of art pieces, including tapestries, books, and poems. Their house was consumed by beautiful art everywhere you looked, and Isabella was happy to share her art with her friends and family by continuing to host parties with the socialites of Boston and all over the world. As the couple purchased more and more art pieces, they were on the hunt for a bigger home to house their collection. Sadly, tragedy strikes again when in 1898, Jack dies from a stroke. Isabella, of course, was devastated, but she used her husband's death as motivation to propel her forward and purchase a bigger plot of land for their art. She worked closely with Willard Sears, a local architect, to design their dream museum. Isabella was inspired by the Renaissance palaces in Venice and made sure her museum reflected that. After designing with Sears, construction finally began in 1899, and two years later, in 1981, it was finished. The museum consisted of four floors. The first three were for art displays and the fourth floor would serve as an apartment for Isabella. Once she moved in, she would spend the rest of her life staging, rearranging, and adding pieces to her collection. Finally, in 1903, Isabella was ready to showcase her collection to the world. For the grand opening, guests were invited to celebrate art, music, and culture. There was live music, food, drinks, and it was just a truly spectacular event for Isabella. This is exactly what she and her late husband Jack wanted. A month after the grand opening, Isabella opened the doors to the public for all to enjoy. I like Isabella. She seems sweet. She really does. Um, she was never really selfish with the art that she purchased. She just wanted to share that with people. Over the years, the museum operated as normal, bringing in guests from all over the world. As Isabella grew older, her health began deteriorating. Like her husband, she suffered a stroke in 1919, and she was fine, but she knew she had to start writing her will. In her will, she stated that she did not want anything in her galleries to change, no matter what. She wanted the museum to stay just like she designed it for generations to come. How cute! I know, I feel like everything about her seems adorable. Sadly, in 1924, Isabella passed away, leaving behind money to cover the museum's expenses, but she also left money to plenty of local nonprofits and organizations in Boston. Isabella was well known and loved by her community for her selflessness. We stand. We have to stand. What an amazing woman. She really accomplished so much as a woman during this time period. And remember guys, this was back in the 1800s where women didn't really have much of a say. And now a quick word from today's sponsor. But let's get into the real reason we're here today. Let's talk about the heist.
On March 18, 1990, St. Patrick's Day celebrations were in full effect. Parties and bars near the museum were packed with people trying to have a good time. With all the chaos that night, police officers hanging around the area were definitely expected. Two of these police officers parked the hatchback near a side entrance of the Gardner Museum and went about their business. Like I said, the crowd saw the whole thing happen, but they didn't think anything suspicious about it and they went on about their night. Was it a police car? It wasn't marked as a police car, but people believed it to be an undercover vehicle. The museum had security guards 24-7 and the two guards on duty that night were Rick Abbott and Randy Heestand. Although both had worked there for a bit, this was Randy's first time working the night shift alongside Rick, who had been working the night shift for a while. Museum protocol stated that one security had to make rounds with a flashlight and a walkie-talkie while the other guards stayed put at the security desk. So basically walking around by yourself in the dark? Yeah, that sounds like a nightmare. No thank you. Rick Abbott made his rounds first. While on his rounds, fire alarms kept going off in different rooms, or should I say galleries, but Rick didn't see any smoke or fire when he would check. Um, just an FYI guys, at this time also, um, they were like renewing their security system in the museum. So you guys keep that in mind. Oh, thank you for pointing that out. I completely missed that when I was typing this up. But yeah guys, so um, they were updating the security system, but back to the smoke alarms, when he would check there was no fire or smoke, he just figured that the system was malfunctioning, so he turned it off to reboot it. Rick finished his rounds, but before returning to the security desk, Rick opened the side door and then quickly closed it again. For what? He never says why. By 1am, Rick was back and it was Randy's turn to make his rounds. 20 minutes in, two people walked up to the side entrance, the one that Rick Abbott had opened and closed during his rounds, and bust into the security desk. Rick could see these two individuals through the camera and notice that they were dressed as police officers. Let's, let's talk about Rick for a minute here. During the day when he wasn't at work, he was like uh, associated like with a rock band or something like that. And he was always stoned. He was a pothead. So just so you guys can have a little, you know, idea of who he was. I think this is important to know. Yeah, keeping in mind like what could have been his mental state at the time. Um, it was never confirmed whether or not, you know, he was stoned during this specific shift. He claims he wasn't. But I, you make a good point. They interviewed him. I'm pretty sure they had to. He even admitted himself that he would go to work stoned. But this particular night, he didn't. Hmm, what are the, what are the, <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> exactly. So like I said, these two individuals were dressed as police officers. And it was weird to Rick. He like didn't call the police himself or anything. He didn't understand why they were there. Rick asked why they were there. And they said that they were there for a disturbance call. And they were just there to investigate. Breaking protocol, Rick lets the officers in. And I think it was because he didn't, he wanted to avoid getting in trouble or, you know, causing a scene or anything like that. I think at the time he owed some tickets, so he wanted to avoid getting on their bad side. So that's why he apparently let them in. Okay, so he lets them in. And once the officers are in, they tell Rick that he needed to round up all of the other security guards. Through the walkie-talkie, Rick called Randy and told him to come back to the office. In the silence, while waiting, Rick began to notice that something was off about these police officers. They looked a little... fake. They were dressed as police officers, by the way. But, um, the officers must have sensed that Rick was onto them, so he asked Rick to come around the desk and show some ID, because like you said, they thought that he had some warrants out for his arrest. 
Scared, Rick walked around the desk, abandoning his station and creating distance between him and the only panic button in the entire museum. The button that will call the police if something was wrong. Rick was then slammed into a wall and handcuffed by one of the police officers. As he was being handcuffed, Randy walked in who was also grabbed and handcuffed by police officer number two. The guards asked why they were being arrested if neither of them had done anything wrong, which is when the police officers revealed that this was not an investigation, but a robbery. Boom, boom, boom. Hold on, this is escalating really fast. I know, it sounds like a scene out of a movie. Yes. The thieves walked the guards into the basement of the museum and were tied to a pipe so they wouldn't escape. Now that the guards were taken care of, it was time to do what they came to do. The movements of the thieves were recorded thanks to motion detectors in the museum. I will be posting a picture of the alarms the thieves tripped on our socials, so make sure you guys go check that out. But anyways, basically the thieves headed to the second floor to the Dutch room exhibit where some of the most expensive and sought after pieces were displayed. They stole a total of six pieces from this one specific room. Wait, if they have motion sensors and the thieves are obviously tripping the alarm, why is no one catching them? Well, the security system was super outdated, which like you said, they were trying to update it, but with the system that they had in place already, um, anything and everything that would trigger the alarms were sent via notifications to the guard security desk, who would then investigate what was going on, or they would press the panic button, like I said. Um, but the guards were tied up in the basement, so even if the alarms were going crazy, no one was there to do anything about it. Do you think the thieves even knew that the panic button was there? Honestly, I feel like they might have known, simply because they purposely got Rick away from that button. But if they didn't know, that was just a massive coincidence and there's some lucky mother us. The thieves moved on to the short gallery, also on the second floor, where they stole another five pieces. Lastly, the thieves stopped by the blue room located on the first floor to take one last piece. Being the nice people that they are, the thieves went to check on the security guards just to make sure that they were comfortable, but primarily to make sure that they hadn't escaped somehow. Finally, before loading up their hatchback, the thieves destroyed any video evidence of them there, including the footage at the intercom when they first bust in. Finally, at 2.40am, a little over an hour from their arrival, the thieves made a trip to their vehicle, came back, and at 2.45 made a second trip. They shut the trunk and drove off, never to be seen again. Wow. Let's um, talk about the pieces they stole. I'm just going to list these off to make it easier. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes so you guys can take a look at all the pieces that we're talking about. So from the Dutch room, the thieves stole the Christ in the Storm of the Sea of Galilee by Rembrandt. They also stole A Lady and Gentleman in Black, also by Rembrandt. And they also stole A Self-Portrait Sketch by Rembrandt. Um, and they also stole The Landscape with an Obelisk by Flick. They also stole An Ancient Chinese Bronze Goo, I believe is the pronunciation. And I think the saddest, in my opinion, that they stole from this exhibit was Isabella's very first acquired piece, the concert by Vermeer. Oh, uh, not that one. I know, she bought that piece with the inheritance her father left there, and it was the piece that officially began the collection. I mean, it's the reason that they were here, you know? All right, so moving on to the short gallery, the thief stole five sketches by Degas, I believe is the pronunciation, um, but I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name of the pieces because they're all in French and your girl does not speak French. 
but they will be listed in the show notes for you guys to take a look and the fifth piece that they stole from the short gallery was a french imperial eagle finial lastly from the blue room the thief stole the chess tortanini by monet um again guys i'm butchering all these pronunciations but with the 13 pieces that the thieves were able to steal they got away with 500 million dollars worth of art 500 million yes and this was back in the 1990s so i'm sure that value has gone up but fun fact according to the museum's website the heist was considered the largest property crime in the world you also have to consider that these pieces that were stolen are actually priceless they are one-of-a-kind pieces and it's hard to put a dollar value on them wait you say what is not considered that anymore no so a different heist that took place a couple years ago stripped the museum from their title and i don't want to say which one because we'll be covering that case soon but okay 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 so the thieves fled the scene around 2.45 a.m. and it wasn't until 6 a.m. when the morning shift security guards arrived that they noticed that no one was coming to the door to let them in. The two guards called the security director, aka the man in charge, so that he could come unlock the door with his keys. Once they were inside, they realized Rick and Randy were nowhere to be found and immediately called police. Upon arrival, the police searched the entire building, finally finding Rick and Randy in the basement at around 8 a.m. The FBI took over the case almost immediately as they figured the thieves were not going to stay in town long enough to get caught. FBI agents hit the streets to see if they could find any witnesses. From talking to locals, agents were able to create a composite sketch of the police officers and that picture will also be posted on all our socials for you guys to see. By the way, whenever Rick saw this um, sketches, he said that those sketches were horrible. Yeah, I think I saw that too. Rick was definitely a character. He was, he was something else. I'm telling you, he was. In terms of tangible evidence, there really wasn't any. No footprints or DNA was found at the scene. The only physical evidence left behind was fingerprints, but after testing them, it was inconclusive about whether or not it belonged to the thieves or to the employees. They couldn't, like, check the employees and check them and see if there was a match? No, they did, but they couldn't conclude whether or not they were a match. Like... Um, girl this is back in the day so yes yes i need to keep telling myself this was back in the day in the composite sketch that these had mustaches which i read that the mustaches were fake good eye um i did notice that too and i wonder why they didn't just make two different sketches one with and one without the mustaches because they could have simply took this off when they were driving away you know aside from talking to the witnesses the fbi also interviewed rick and randy from these interviews the fbi grew suspicious of rick abbott There were just way too many coincidences and lots of sketchiness from his end. Remember when I said he opened and closed the side door during his rounds? Well, apparently that was not part of the requirements when making rounds. Rick claimed that that was something he did regularly to make sure the door was locked, but the FBI could not find evidence to support this statement. Another coincidence is the motion detectors. The motion detectors did not detect the thief's activity in the blue room, but they did detect Rick's movements while on his rounds an hour prior to the robbery. The museum had to run a diagnostic test on the machine and concluded that the machine had been working correctly the entire night of the robbery. They also concluded that the machine had not been tampered with prior to the thieves arriving, so the machine recording their movements was just a lucky coincidence. The FBI couldn't hold Rick accountable for anything that happened that night, so they let him go and moved on to other suspects. Their second suspect was James Bulger, also known as Witty. He was the boss of an Irish mob in Boston and was pretty active in the 1990s. Witty had a hefty criminal record, but refused to take credit for the heist. After searching high and low to try and pin this to Witty, they were unsuccessful and moved on. 
Another suspect was Brian McDevitt, who was known for a failed attempt on robbing the Hyde Collection Museum in New York. Like the thieves in this heist, Brian used the costume of a FedEx driver in order to access the museum after hours, but he got stuck in traffic and was caught by police. Apart from the similarities, Brian's fingerprints were not a match to those found in the museum, so he was let go as well. The case went pretty cold up until 1994 when Anne Hawley, the museum director at the time, received an anonymous letter. The letter stated that they wanted to work at a deal to return the art. The anonymous writer requested a $2.6 million payout for the safe return of the work, no questions asked. No police involvement, no setups, no prosecution, nothing. Just an even exchange. Anne was convinced that this lead was legit, so with the permission from the FBI, moved forward with communicating interest with the anonymous writer via code, per their request. Because Anne involved the FBI, the anonymous writer became spooked and decided to walk away from the deal. No new leads and no new suspects emerged throughout the investigation until 2015 when a video was released by the FBI showing that the night before the heist, March 17, 1990, Rick Abbott, the sketchy security guard who let the thieves in the night of the heist, had bust in a man who has yet to be identified. Why did they wait so long to release the statement? Um, I'm not sure, honestly. Um, I think maybe, I don't know, that's a good question. They, you know, they, don't, they don't say. The FBI questioned Rick about the incident, in which he claims he remembers none of it. Surprise, surprise. Rick is really coming out of a really sketchy person. Girl, he's been looking sketchy. <laughs> the FBI released the image of the unknown man and asked the public for help identifying him. Former staff at the museum claims that the man was Rick's boss at the time, the museum's deputy security chief, whose name has never been released. It has now been 31 years since the robbery and the Isabella Story Gardner Museum remains open, with the frames of the stolen art still hanging, honoring Isabella's wish to never move or change a thing about the museum. The thieves not only stole priceless pieces of art that night, but deprived an entire generation from honoring Isabella's wishes of maintaining the museum for the education and enjoyment of the public forever. So, sis, what do you think? I really think it was an inside job. What? Okay, okay. Why do you think it was an inside job? Um, because I found it very suspicious. Like, little things, like, whenever Rick uh, let that man in uh, the night before, which is obviously not allowed, going against protocol, and also, and then the fact that he doesn't remember. Like, really, how you don't remember what you did the day before? Something I found really weird also is the night of the heist, um, whenever Rick was doing his little walk through the museum, um, where he opened the door and closed it. Like, what was the point of that? That's sketchy to me. That, to me, that's like he was giving a little signal to the fake police officers that it was time. Oh my God, okay. So I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking the same exact thing. I was like, is that a signal? Like, what, what was, was the point? He opened that door and that door was close to where they had parked in the, in the beginning of the story. Oh, okay, okay. I'm glad that you brought that up because that was one of the most like talked about theories that it was an inside job and especially because like i said that they they said that that guy that walked in the night before was a security guard um or that was the boss um during the time and they were thinking that he was one of the robbers that he was one of the persons that that robbed the place and when he walked in to talk to abbott that that day before that he was kind of like going over the plan with him i mean there was no audio recording in the moment or at the time so they never really they didn't they didn't ex like 
they didn't say what they were talking about that makes sense to me also he could have gone the night before to like okay let me show you around this is how you can get around the museum this is what we have here this is what we have over there kind of like going through a little rundown well i mean like i said he was a, a security guard there so he would already know the layout of the museum but regardless it was like i said they could have been in there like okay like okay we're gonna come in we're gonna do this act scared act surprised so like when they're looking at the camera footage that like, he does look scared you know um but again like the fact that he broke protocol in the first place like if protocol says you're not coming in you're not coming in that's it you know there was no need for him to let the police in especially if he wasn't the one that called them you know yes and like i said it was just like like you said the entire thing was suspicious i do think it's an inside job it sucks that 30 years later we still don't know where the art is and what was the point of stealing the art like where does it go nobody has seen it since so where the hell is it what was the point of stealing it if you're not gonna show it i agree also i mean it will be very hard to sell it because if you had an attempt to sell it then they're gonna be like oh this is a, a robbed item like what yeah where did you where did you buy it or, or, or are you connected to the robbers you know so yeah i'm like I know it's worth a lot of money, but it will be very hard to make a dime out of those because knowing that those are stolen pieces would have make it very hard until this day, you know? Like, I don't really know much about the art black market, if I'm being honest. Like, I'm not sure how they would even, like you said, go about i don't even know how they would go about selling it like how do they promote that they have these items they're really sought after people really want them like how do they know where to sell it another theory that i have is that this was a, a hit job um in the sense that somebody hired them to rob the the museum and bring them the pieces yeah that could be a thing also and because if the pieces are still missing that just means that somebody has them like if you put them in your house who's gonna know that they're there you know but it's also like what do you want them for what is the point like why those specific pieces and why i just don't get it i guess because i'm not like a big um art person like i don't i understand like the cultural significance of the pieces but like to me like i wouldn't pay that money for the pieces but what's the point like are you get it you get what i'm saying like i just don't understand yes um i definitely get what you're saying and to me i mean all these pieces missing I feel bad but the one that really got me is that they stole her first one like the one the concert one where she uh, used her dad's inheritance to buy that I'm like what will you get that one like not that one yeah that one was super sad like the, the when I heard that I was like man like did they have a personal vendetta against Isabella but I mean she died a long time ago so I feel like if somebody did have a problem with Isabella, they probably wouldn't have been alive in the 1990s. You know, if they knew her, they wouldn't be alive to rob her 60 years after her death. But other than that, I did hear that there was some type of loophole that the person who, who, like, let's say I stole the pieces and I want to sell them to you. Um, if you did not have knowledge that they were stolen, you could legally own the like you could legally purchase the art and even if the fbi tried to get it back or take it away from you they couldn't because you legally purchased the art i don't know how that loophole works i didn't really look into it so that's something definitely worth looking into but i thought that was interesting and kind of messed up if i'm being honest yeah you're right about purchasing not knowing they were missing 
I mean, I wouldn't have known they were missing until like I came across this case. So not like I have that money to purchase them, right? But you guys know what I mean. I'm glad that we're both on the same page. I'm glad that we both agreed this was an inside job. Any final thoughts? Not any, but what do you guys think? Let us know. I invite y'all every episode to come over to our social medias and have a chat with us. Let's discuss this episode. Let's discuss this case. Let me know what you think. Definitely. I can't wait to see what you guys think. See if you guys agree with us, disagree with us. Whatever the case may be, we're just always looking forward to you guys' DMs, messages, comments, whatever it is. Um, You guys can always hit us up. We're here for you. All right, cuties, with that being said, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. Head over to our Instagram at Sisters and Crime Pod or visit our Facebook page, Sisters and Crime Podcast, to chime in under today's episode. As always, we thank you for your support and listening to our podcast. Feel free to leave us a rate on Apple Podcasts if you're enjoying the show. And like I said, feel free to DM us with any feedback, questions, comments, which whatever you guys want. Like I said, we're here. We created the show for you and we want to improve in any way that you guys see fit. And don't forget to tune in next week for a brand new episode. Until then, bye! bye.